All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mercy House University podcast. Today, we're continuing our series on uh, arguments for the existence of God, which we've called How God Explains Everything. So the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at um, teleological arguments or, or design arguments, talking about how God explains certain things in physics and biology. Today, we're going to be talking about morality. Uh, how does God explain morality? And Austin is going to tell us about that. Thanks, Justin. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at the moral argument for God. And it's a pretty simple argument. So we'll look at the premises and the conclusion and then kind of break down each of those and explain them. But so premise one, if moral values and duties are objectively real, then God exists. Premise two, moral values and duties are objectively real. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. So uh, looking at the first premise, um, if moral values and duties are objectively real, then God exists. So what do, what do you mean by um, moral values and duties being objectively real? So what I mean by that is that those values and duties originate outside of our human production, right? They're not something that we have created uh, either individually or collectively. Um, so they're not individually or collectively subjective. Um, but if that's the case, then they have to be transcendent in some way, right? They have to come from something outside of us or beyond us. Um, and there's good reason to think that a source of that kind uh, would have to be also a moral being of some kind. And uh, given some of the other arguments we've been looking at, that would point us towards the existence of a being like God. So would a good contrast to objectively real be like uh, real, but like relative or something like that, like relative to a culture or relative to what I think or something like that? Yeah, so that's, it is kind of the only other alternative, <laughs> is that either these things are objective facts, or they're objectively real. So it is really the case that uh, it is good to love your neighbor or help old women cross the street, and it is objectively true, it, it is true that uh, it's wrong to, you know, murder children, and that's true in all cases. Um, and it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what your society thinks about it. It just is wrong. Um, so that's right. what I mean by being objectively the case. The alternative would be that uh, either I have a set of th values that I think are right or wrong, and those might be different from what other, think are right or, other people think are right or wrong, and they're really dependent upon myself. Um, or some people put this at the level of society. So each culture or society has a set of of moral values that it determines for itself are good or bad. Um, but then it can't really put those onto other cultures or societies because it's up to them to choose their own set of moral values. Great. Thanks. And so like uh, some people are going to want to ground facts about morality in some kind of uh, evolutionary basis, some kind of basis about what makes for survival. Uh, I find this idea really persuades some of my 
students when, when we're talking about morality. They, they like the, uh, the idea of evolution. They want to say that morality isn't some deep fact about the world separate from just something that has to do with, yeah, with, with evolutionary facts or, or some natural fact about what helps you survive or reproduce. So can you say something a little bit about that view? Yeah, that's great. I think even, even just reading around on uh, some different, you know, uh, AmericanAtheist.com and you know, things like that, uh, this seems to be a really common uh, question that comes up. And I, I was going to address it um, at, at some point here. Maybe I'll bring it up here. Um, what this argument is not about is whether or not you need God in order to be good. And this is usually where I see this as a counter response of, well, hey, why, you know, why can't atheists could be good people. I know lots of people who don't believe in God who are decent people. You know, they're, they're kind, they're nice, they pay their taxes, they generally obey the law. You know, why do they need, they don't need God to be good. Um, and this is where you get alternative explanations of how you get moral behavior apart from God. Uh, and this is where evolutionary arguments come in. And I think what the confusion here is a distinction between how we get moral values how we acquire them and sort of the, the truth value of those values. That makes sense. Um, so I think we could say, yeah, we, we uh, acquired these moral values through certain evolutionary processes that actually showed, yeah, it is better when we work cooperatively. That is better for us than when we uh, lie and deceive one another because then we can't trust each other, we can't work together, and individuals don't survive as well. Um, so there are lots of good, I think, uh, I think some of those explanations can give us uh, reasons for why we have certain moral values that we have. Um, I think those are fine, actually. But those don't tell us whether or not those things are true in the sense of actually being goods or evils. That makes sense. Yeah, so so you're saying, just to see if I've got this, like, okay, look, suppose there's an evolutionary story about why uh, societies have adopted certain kinds of moral norms. Um, well, well, all that does is explain why we've chosen to adopt them. But if you also think, which seems right, that these moral norms are in some sense like important truths about the world. Like it really is good to do this or right to do this and wrong to do that or whatever. Uh, then, well, that needs to be explained too. And just an evolutionary story about how we came to uh, either believe that or behave in accord with that doesn't answer that question. So another thing that we could say that I think fits with what you're saying right here, Austin, is that even if you wanted to explain morality in terms of uh, survival and reproduction. You wanted to say that uh, something is right or wrong because it aids survival and reproduction. You would still have to offer an, uh, uh, an explanation of why survival or reproduction matter. And evolution itself, like that theory doesn't tell you why survival or reproduction matter in any moral sense. Um, so you would still need some objective moral facts about why survival of biological organisms matters that would that would sort of go beyond evolutionary theory so um what about this kind of account 
So I think a lot of philosophers would just say that the explanation of uh, like moral facts is just the natural facts that they supervene on or attach to. So like, for example, it's just because it, it's, you know, causing pain or distress to a conscious being that like torturing somebody is wrong, for example. Um, why can't we just have that? Um, I mean, the, so the appeal tends to be there to some kind of empathy or something like that, like social cooperation that, and um, at least a lot of the stuff I read seems to suggest that, well, I wouldn't want to be in those, that same situation. Like I wouldn't want to be tortured in that way. I wouldn't want to have that experience. So I shouldn't inflict it on someone else. Um, like that, that's sort of the argument for why we would have that response of is some kind of empathy. Um, which again, I think tells us, uh, it might explain why we have some of these intuitions, but it doesn't actually give us, uh, criteria for judging the moral value of those actions. It just tells us why we respond to them the way that we do. Yeah. So I think some people think that way about like the role of empathy in morality, but the view I was thinking of is more like this. Um, it says that independently of our like empathic responses to things, uh, it's just like the nature of certain uh, natural things in the world, like pain and consciousness and and being a, a rational agent uh, is just because things have those properties that they also have moral properties. Those um, those sort of like natural things that you just find in the world are what ground the moral parts of the world, according to this view. Um, and so, someone who thinks that that view is as attractive is not going to see any need to posit. Uh, a different explanation involving God. Yeah, so that's interesting. So you have uh, a basis for objective morality, right? You're saying these are just natural facts in the world that it is wrong to hurt a living creature, um, a living conscious creature in this way to cause it pain. That's just a natural fact that anybody could see and know, and it's just out there. Mm -hmm. um, so that would give you objective moral value but it wouldn't require God in any particular way. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my intuition on that is it, it seems like kind of an arbitrary distinction, right? It's like, we want to have our cake and eat it too. Uh, like the, things have just pro, you know, developed through this natural process. There's no uh, direction or guidance or um, intentionality, but some of those things are better than others. Um, it seems like those kind of value distinctions become arbitrary at that point to, just, to call them moral facts. Strange. Yeah. Or just like an odd, like, yeah, it's an odd jump to get from, this is just the way things are in the world to this is how things ought to be in the world. Uh, the way I was kind of hearing you right now is like, uh, you can think about just like, a a particle, like an electron clearly the electron doesn't matter in any moral sense. And if you think about a more complex thing, uh, some kind of, uh, I don't know, element on the periodic table, that doesn't matter in any moral sense. And if you think about a slightly more complex thing, adding some complexity doesn't seem to make it matter morally. And if you just keep adding more complexity, how could that make it 
all of a sudden matter morally? Uh, at what point in adding complexity would you get moral significance out of just adding more parts? Uh, that that seemed to be maybe one way of cashing out what you're trying to get at. That it's it would be an arbitrary jump to get from one collection of parts to get to another co collection of parts where one collection is morally insignificant. You don't bear any duties to it or responsibilities or anything. And the other collection of parts is, it matters. It's like, a, you know, it's morally significant. And I suppose um, there's also the other side of this. So a lot of the comments we've been just making are mostly about moral value, but Austin also included uh, reference to moral duties in the argument. And there, um, you might think there's a totally different story to tell uh, because like, so for example, as Robert Adams has pointed out, um, you might think that the best explanation of moral duties is gonna be a social one. It, it's, some, it's something to do with like in social communities, what people demand of each other. Um, but, uh, and again, this is something Adams says, you know, if we rest moral duties on social requirements, uh, and we also want to avoid saying that moral duties are like relative to communities uh, or something like that, because we want to be able to say, for example, that like, you know, the Nazi community had it wrong, then we're going to need um, a social entity that transcends human communities, uh, like God. Yeah, you have to, at the very least, I think you'd have to get out to something like a almost more of a pantheistic, like in some kind of totality where, oh, you're somehow dependent on the whole, therefore you have duties to everything else, right? Some kind of dependency, duty, relationship. But that would already get you to something transcendent, whether or not in that case it would have to be God um, in that way, I don't know. Mm -hmm. but. So that I feel like that puts the pressure maybe on premise two and the question of whether we should think that morality is objective. Because um, you might just push back on that and say that morality is subjective or, you know, it's like it's relative to culture. Or you might just be like some of the students I've run into are, you might be like a moral nihilist and say, there are no moral facts. There's just like moral opinions, man. Yeah, so we've got some of our classic nihilist existentialists you know Nietzsche, Camus, Sartre, some of these people who uh, just outright object that there is any such thing as moral objectivity. Um, there are no moral absolutes, no moral facts and you can either embrace the absurdity of life without meaning or moral, moral value, values uh, or you can sort of create your own and this is I think a much more common response for us today. Uh, there are not many people, uh, I think the joke is out, outside of the Big Lebowski, there are not any real nihilists in the world. <laughs> uh, so our, our tendency today is to sort of, well, we, we create our own moral values, right? I, I decide what's good for me, you decide what's good for you. This is sort of our tolerance culture. Um, and I think there are uh, a number of problems with that. I think if those things are sort of voluntary decisions, um, then in some sense they're ultimately arbitrary, right? That there's nothing outside of my, me that's holding those duties or values upon me in some kind of authoritative way. 
so I can choose to no longer see that as a moral duty as soon as it is no longer something I want to pursue anymore. So you end up with this issue. I think a lot of those moral duties become arbitrary. Um, but I think a lot of this goes back to, and maybe so tie a little bit into some of the, the way we thought about the last argument we made about how appearances and our intuitions kind of appeal to intuition. But we have this want desire to call things good or evil, sort of a natural thing that we do. We look at something, we say that's that's good or that's evil. Um, and I think it gets really hard to get away from that. So, you know, we, we kind of mentioned the Nazi society, but this was a big problem with the Nuremberg trials. So a lot of thinking up uh, in Europe uh, in the early 20th century was positive uh, law, which was that, you know, basically the law of the land was what determined the morality of that land, that, that nation state. What do you do when you have a nation state that's committing these horrendous crimes and none of it's illegal? So is any of it wrong? And that raised major issues. And so people had to basically deal with some conception of, uh, had to appeal to some conception of a natural law, right? This kind of transcendent law, these objective facts in nature that just say it is wrong to kill innocent people in this way, no matter what. Doesn't matter what your laws say, doesn't matter what your culture deems is acceptable, it's just wrong to do this. And I think this kind of, this gets at um, this, these alternatives, because if we, we want to say it's all subjective or relative, either both at the, either at the individual level or at the societal cultural level, then we can't make those kind of claims, right? We, we have to be willing to say, well, I don't like that. And my society and my, my social moral conditioning in my society says that that's bad. So we don't like that. But I, we can't actually say that it's wrong for you to do it, right? We, because we're, there's nothing for us to appeal to other than our own social preferences. Um, and I think most of us are, I think most people would be unsatisfied with that. I find that unsatisfying, right? I want to be able to look at things uh, like the Holocaust. Um, and if I can get slightly more personal, uh, I was actually there this last summer uh, on a fellowship. And, you know, a lot of it's in theory, you read history books and you think about how, you know, how did this happen? What social factors led to this? And you, you kind of think about it from this more abstract theoretical level. But when you're actually there on the ground and you're walking around these camps and you're seeing everything, it, you just can't get away from this sense of this was just evil. And it was evil in a way that I can't make sense of almost. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, there at the time, if, if I didn't have some kind of categories of, of good and evil to make sense of this, I don't know how you would make sense of this. Um, if you couldn't actually call this evil, right. It, it was just something that some people chose to do and I don't really like it, but who, am, what am I, you know, who am I to say <laughs> that that would not have been an adequate framework for dealing with this for actually making sense of the weight and the gravity of it. Um, and obviously that's a sort of ex extreme case, but I think in our everyday life, the way we think about justice and injustice, I think we naturally in appeal to this kind of reasoning 
um, you know, somebody cuts you off, you, you think that person did me wrong, right? You don't think, well, I didn't like, I did, I just didn't like that, right? You think, well, no, that that was wrong that they did that, and I want that to be fixed in some way. I want that to be corrected in some way, right? We're, we're appealing to some sense of justice, and while we might be able to account for some of those intuitions of how we got them, going back to like the evolutionary argument, it doesn't actually undergird or support those things as actually being issues of justice. They're just issues of preference. Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely common amongst the students that I've talked to, to to resist objective morality. But one thing I've found a persuasive kind of point is to point out that they care about moral reform. And this connects with what you're talking about, Austin. Um, you know, at the Nuremberg trials, we had this uh, sort of codified desire to to say about what uh, Nazi Germany did, that it was evil, that you can't do that. Uh, but likewise, a lot of our, a lot of students really care about moral reform of their own society, right? They want to be part of movements of social justice. But if cultural relativism is true and the sort of cultural majority is what determines what's right or wrong for a culture, then cultural reformers are, in general, because they're part of a minority, they're by definition wrong when they say, uh, when they, you know, speak up against the majority. That that just just seems obviously false, though, right? Like that somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., not only was he wrong when he was speaking against the majority, but that he was by definition wrong. No, we want to say that he was right in a way that was incredibly valuable and, and led to, uh, you know, healing. And, and we want to say a lot more. But, um, yeah, so I think for a lot of people who want to resist the idea of objective morality, when you point out to them that they actually care about some moral matters that require objective morality and, more, and they, want, they care about moral progress in a way that requires objective morality, it can help sort of uh, cure that cognitive dissonance a little bit. All right. So suppose we think um, for the reasons we've gone through, suppose we think that there's got to be like some kind of a transcendent explanation of moral facts. Um, Why think though, that it has to be God specifically? So if we have these moral facts, which are uh, objective, so they're, they're unchanging. Uh, they're in some way transcendent. Uh, they're um, then we would expect you to have some kind of being that is also like that, <laughs> or some kind of source for those things that is also like that, um, which is itself good or moral, uh, which is itself uh, unchanging, and which is itself um, sort of transcendent in this way. So there are a few different uh, explanations people have given for how God gives us morality in this way. So there's divine, divine command theory, which is that God issues commands, just what God says is, is good uh, because God says it. Uh, and then there's another way of thinking about it where God is a sort of paradigm of moral value. So God is a certain way. And so we, what it is to be moral is to be like God, to behave like God. Um, but either way, you get a being uh, who's good and a being who then explains these other moral facts, who provides these moral facts. 
Um, and the best explanation for why we might think this, uh, that this being has these moral perfections, um, or the best explanation for why this being has these moral perfections is that it also has other moral perfections or other perfections like uh, eternality, uh, immutability, transcendence, um, some of these other perfections. Awesome. Yeah. And for the details about that last move from some perfections to all perfections, remember that's always back in our first episode. So you can go listen to that if you want more. All right. So this episode, Austin has led us through a discussion of the moral argument. And we've, so we've thought a bit about like, you know, are there moral facts? And if there are, what best explains this? And some people think the best explanation is going to involve God. So it looks like we've got another piece in our cumulative case for the existence of God. 